listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. For our sermon uh, this weekend, we're taking a slight detour. We've, as many of you know, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at it passage by passage. Last week, you know, we looked at the passage that has to do with reconciliation, and Kim Dodd helped me preach that sermon, did a fantastic job. It's one of those sermons you you really have to go back and listen to it two or three times because there's so much content and man, we're just flying through it, but we, there's certain things that had to be said. And, and so I'd encourage you, you can always go back and listen to our sermons, whether on the website or through our podcast. If you need help finding that, come find me. But just search Village Church Burbank, you'll find the podcast. But we're taking a detour this week. Um, rather than moving forward in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll do that next weekend. But I want to do a teaching uh, this weekend. I've been feeling led to do this. A teaching on the topic of water baptism. In a couple months, few months, um, we're going to be planning to have some water baptisms. Uh, Right now, it looks like it'll be the first weekend of May. And I just felt like because we're planning to do water baptisms in another two or three months, I think it would be helpful, especially with me being new here, that you hear from me and that, that you just hear in general, what is water baptism? What is water baptism all about? What is it? What is it not? And, and that we have some really grounded understanding here about what water baptism is. And I think this is going to be helpful whether you've never been baptized or whether you have been baptized years and years and years ago. This teaching, I believe, is going to help you to reframe your understanding of water baptism in a way that's going to help you appreciate your baptism even more, more than you ever have. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight And the title of my sermon is The Betrothal Ceremony. You'll see why a little bit later in the sermon. But let's go ahead and look at uh, just kind of our opening text. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. And here's what Jesus says. This is right before he's going to ascend to the right hand of his father. He's leaving. But here's the commission, the charge that he gives his apprentices. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Um, so Jesus tells us, go and make disciples, and then notice the very first thing the very first part of what fills out the meaning of what it means to make disciples is he says, first of all, you baptize them. And so water baptism is the first act of discipleship. And this is the pattern you see throughout the New Testament. This is the way water baptism is thought about and practiced is, is there was really a sense of importance and a sense of urgency to this matter of being baptized, I'll show it to you, uh, just a couple examples in the book of Acts. Um, But in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to look at in a moment, it takes place during the Feast of Pentecost. This is one of the big Jewish festivals that happened annually. And you had hundreds of thousands of Jews who have come from all over the world 
to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be a part of the Feast of Pentecost. And these Jews come from a variety of different cultures and, and, and they speak all kinds of languages and dialects, but they're all there, probably well over two million people in Jerusalem during this little season, this little festival. And Jesus' apprentices have also gathered in Jerusalem because Jesus told them to. He says, I'm fixing to leave, but I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't do anything. Don't plant any churches. Don't start preaching any sermons. Just go to Jerusalem and wait. He says, because you're going to receive something in Jerusalem. There's a gift that my father has for you, and I don't want you to do anything until you've received that gift. So, so these Believers go to Jerusalem and they wait. They've gathered together. There's 120 of them and they wait in, in the upper room. They don't know how long it's going to be. They, it, could be a, it could be one day. It could be 10 days. It could be 100 days. They have no clue. They just know we're supposed to come and wait until we receive something. And, and so they've waited for 10 days. And then on the day of Pentecost, the actual day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on these 120 believers, and a lot of things happen, but one of the things that happens is they begin to supernaturally speak in other languages, actual human languages from around the world, and it spills out onto the streets of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is packed like a can of sardines with people from all over the world, and all of a sudden, people start to notice, wait a second, who are these people? They're praising God in my language from way back, you know, in Asia Minor somewhere or whatever. But they're, they're, they're speaking in my language, in my dialect, but they're not from where I'm from. These people are from Galilee. How is this, how is this happening? And, and it creates this buzz. It creates a stir. It starts to spread. And people are confused. But there's also a realization that whatever's happening, this is something supernatural. Either that or these people are drunk, but how does that explain why they're speaking my language? And so there's a lot of confusion happening, and into this moment steps the Apostle Peter. And Peter, who just a few days earlier denied Christ, denied even knowing him, but now Peter is bold and he stands on the southern temple steps with thousands of Jews gathered around, and he begins to project his voice and he begins to preach about Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who was crucified just a few days before, right here outside the city walls. But on the third day, he has literally physically resurrected from the grave. His grave is empty, and he has now ascended to the right hand of the Father as Lord of all, and he has poured out what you're now seeing and what you're now hearing. So Peter begins to explain all of this, and then as he explains it, people start feeling conviction. There's just this pull on them. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized. This is the common phrase you see, repent and be baptized. Baptism was not a secondary thing. It was, it was part of what it means to come into the kingdom. Uh, another passage that takes place about 10 years later in Acts chapter 10, we'll look at in a moment. But Peter again is sent by God 
to go to the house of a man named Cornelius, who is a Gentile. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. So here's a Gentile with his Gentile family, and God sends Peter to go to this house and to share about the same message, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who is Lord of all, and he's inviting you to come into his kingdom. So Peter goes. This is something he would have never done. You, you, you would never go into a Gentile's house, but he's just had this strange experience in prayer, and he feels God has led him to do this. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and his entire family is there. Peter begins to share the news, this gospel message of the kingdom of God, and right in the middle of Peter sharing this, Boom, the Holy Spirit is now poured out on these Gentiles in the same way that he was poured out 10 years earlier on these Jews at the day of Pentecost. Well, now these Gentiles begin to prophesy and supernaturally speak in all of these other languages and tongues and, and what have you. And, and for Peter and his buddies who are all of Jewish background, they're just confused. Because up until this point, they've always assumed that salvation is for the Jews, and if a Gentile wants to come into the kingdom, they first got to become a Jew. But here you have the Holy Spirit poured out on these Gentiles as Gentiles. And so now they're starting to see things completely different. And look what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. He says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered, everybody say ordered. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So once again, I just want you to see, this is the pattern in the book of Acts. There was an importance to this matter of water baptism. As soon as somebody aligns themselves under Jesus as their king, they need to be baptized. Now listen, this is very important. In that culture, in that day and age, the idea of being baptized or immersed in water was a very common ritual, ritual or rite that happened in the Jewish faith. It was, it, was not, um, it was not unusual to have something like this taking place. In fact, right there in front of the temple were probably hundreds of mikvahs where people would ritually wash before they walked into the temple. So the idea of being immersed in water, this was very common in their culture. They understood, in other words, what they were doing. They understood what it meant to be baptized. So there wasn't a whole lot of need to actually take time to instruct people. They knew what they were doing. And so as soon as someone repented and came, came under the authority of Christ, it was appropriate right then and there for them to be baptized because they knew what they were doing. In our culture, and especially in a city like Los Angeles, there are a lot of people who have no religious background whatsoever. And even among us who do have uh, a Christian background, many of you come from different churches or different denominations that have different ideas about what baptism is. And some of those ideas sometimes conflict. So in our context, it actually makes sense for us to slow down a little bit and take time to instruct people about what water baptism is and what it isn't so that people know what they're doing before they get into it. Amen? And part of what we're going to do is we'll take a recording of this message and eventually put it on our website. That way, everybody who comes to Christ at Village Church will be able to 
instruct them on what water baptism is without having to preach on it every single time. Um, so, so that's what we're doing here this weekend. I, I want to give this teaching about what water baptism is, what it isn't, so that we clearly understand what we're doing before we get into the trough or tank or swimming pool or whatever we end up doing. All right? So let me first give you two things that water baptism is not, and then we'll get into the main thing about what water baptism is. First of all, number one, Water baptism is not an optional symbolic gesture. I know we don't necessarily consciously think of it that way, but I think sometimes that's how we talk about it. It's like, okay, you know what? The main thing is that you just make a decision to follow Jesus and confess Jesus as Lord. That's the main thing. And then after, you know, if you ever have a chance to get baptized, um, if you ever get around to it, if you ever had the opportunity, it'd be a good thing for you to consider. You know, it'd be, a, it'd be a noble gesture on your part, but it's not really this huge deal. The main thing is you just make a decision. Notice that's not how the early Christians regarded water baptism. We just saw the language a moment ago. Peter ordered them to be baptized. This is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We follow Jesus and at the very beginning, it means we follow him in being baptized. If Jesus himself was baptized, and that's a whole separate sermon, but part of following Jesus is following him in water baptism. So this is anything but an optional symbolic gesture on our part. But here's the second thing that water baptism is not from the other extreme. Water baptism is not magic. It doesn't magically wash away your sins. Uh, there are many people who come from perhaps a traditional background who carry with them these ideas that actually it's water baptism that washes away your sins. So they would go so far as to say that if you haven't been baptized in water, your sins are not washed away. And some people would even go more explicitly than that and say, if you haven't been baptized in water, you haven't even come into the kingdom of God. I remember years ago, uh, there was a young couple who, who had a young child that unfortunately passed away um, at a young age. And this, this couple had come under this idea that it's water baptism that washes away your sins. And if you haven't been baptized in water, then you're going to be lost. And so this, this mother and this father were distraught because they had never had the child baptized. And, and so now they were assuming that now our child is going to be lost for all of eternity because we didn't, we didn't have the child baptized. We weren't urgent enough about it before the child passed. And so you can imagine just the grief and the depression that they were carrying. Listen, here's a great example of why I'm trying to teach you that when it comes to our understanding of who God is and what God is like, when it comes to that theology, we must center it on the person of Jesus Christ and specifically Jesus crucified on Calvary. And then everything else you think you know about God, you need to filter through that lens. So for example, here's where we need to ask the question, is this image of God, that God is the type of being who would allow a small child to be lost for all of eternity on the basis of a technicality, because the parents weren't urgent enough to get the child baptized. Is that picture of God congruent 
with the picture of God that we see on the cross where Jesus is spreading out his arms saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, when Jesus is on the cross, you remember that the thief next to him, there's two of them, but there's one of the thieves, you remember, who looks over at Jesus and he makes what I believe, if you meditate on it for a while, I think it's maybe the most profound sentence in the entire Gospels other than any sentence that comes from Jesus' mouth. This thief says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When every other disciple who had been with him for three years, and he's taught them about the kingdom for three years, when all those guys have ran away, this thief is able to see with eyes of faith what's happening to some extent and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, can you imagine Jesus looking at the guy saying, I don't know, man, that depends. Have you been baptized? And the guy's like, well, I don't know. I just recently, like, since I've been hanging here, I just recently had this revelation. So no, I haven't had a chance, sir. Can you see Jesus looking at the guy saying, tough luck? I'm sorry, technically. You have, I mean, he's quick, somebody get him off the cross. Toss some water on him. That's absurd. What does Jesus say? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I think that's a helpful story to help us on this topic. That water baptism, number one, it is not optional. It's essential. If the early church has anything to say about it, it's essential. And yet, on the other hand, it's not something that salvation hangs upon. Amen? Amen. You're with me. All right. Now, that brings me to the main thing. What is water baptism? Now that we know what it's not, what is it? And this is what I think is going to be very helpful, especially for those of you who have been baptized. Maybe you were baptized decades ago. This, I think if you're going to, I think if you'll stick with me for a moment, after you leave tonight, you're going to really appreciate your baptism experience. So here's, here's some thoughts about water baptism that, and I don't think it's often taught this way, but I think it's one of the most helpful ways to think about it. Throughout the Bible, one of the, maybe the main metaphor that is used to describe the kind of relationship that God wants with his people is marriage. You see that over and over again. I saw it this morning when I was looking in Isaiah, early in Isaiah, where, where Yahweh, God, is spoken of as like the bridegroom. Or he's sometimes referred to as a husband. And Israel is spoken of as being a bride or the wife. And then over in the New Testament, we see Jesus speaking of himself as a bridegroom. We see Paul in his letters talking about Jesus being the groom, the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. So we see that um, metaphor over and over again throughout the story of the Bible Yahweh is sort of like the husband, the bridegroom. We are his bride or his wife. It's this marriage metaphor. The kind of relationship God wants with us is a marriage-like relationship, a thriving, life-giving, passionate relationship. All right? Now watch this. In ancient Jewish culture, marriage occurred in two stages. The first stage was called the betrothal stage. And it lasted for about a year or two. But there was the betrothal period. And then the wedding would happen. And thereby they would then consummate the marriage. And, and then they would live together as husband and wife for the, hopefully the remainder of their lives. So there was two stages. There was the betrothal 
period. Then there was the actual wedding and everything that followed, all right? Now, betrothal, it's maybe an unfamiliar term to us. We don't have really betrothals in our culture, but we do have engagement. And betrothal was very similar to engagement, but there was one very key difference. And that, that is that whenever a, a man and a woman became betrothed to one another, they were actually legally considered husband and wife. They were legally bound to one another, even though they haven't yet had the wedding. They haven't yet consummated the marriage, but they were legally husband and wife. This, is, you, this might be familiar to you if you know the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were husband and wife, but they hadn't yet come together. They were only betrothed. And here's how betrothal would work. The husband and the wife, the man and the woman, would become betrothed. It would, that betrothal period would last about a year or two. And then watch this. What would happen is the husband typically would then leave and he would go and prepare a place for them to live. And he would seek gainful employment. He would begin preparing himself to be a good husband. And at the same time, the wife is also spending that time to prepare herself to be a good wife. But he would leave and prepare a place. And then after the betrothal period was over, the husband would return for his bride. And then they would have a wedding, which would be a several-day event, huge feast. They would consummate the marriage and then hopefully live happily forever after. All right? So let me ask you a question. If the kind of relationship God imagines with his people is like a marriage relationship, and if in ancient Jewish culture there were two stages of marriage, the betrothal and then the wedding and what follows, what stage would we be in right now in terms of our relationship with God? We're in the betrothal period. Right now, we are betrothed to Christ. When we see that, it helps us make sense of certain passages in the New Testament. Like, for example, in John 14, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. See, he's using betrothal language. It's imagery. It's symbolism. It's, it's just meant to communicate truths that are very real. The same thing is also uh, happening in Revelation when it talks about how when our bridegroom returns, there's going to be a huge wedding feast, this marriage supper of the lamb. You've, maybe you're familiar with that term. Again, it's imagery. It's, it's betrothal metaphor, but it's speaking about truths that are very, very real. Amen. You're with me so far? All right. Now here's the next piece. In ancient Jewish culture, when a man and a woman became betrothed, there was always a ceremony. There was always a betrothal ceremony. It wasn't the wedding. The wedding would come later. The wedding would be a much bigger event, much more extravagant. But anytime a new covenantal relationship was established, there would always be a ceremony. All right? So here's my next question for you if you're following along. If the bride of Christ is the church and we are betrothed to Christ, and if once you submit yourself to Jesus, you become part of that betrothed bride, what is the ceremony? What is the betrothal ceremony that marks the beginning of your relationship with Jesus? Baptism. 
And see, this is what the new Christians understood. This is what the early Christians understood about water baptism. And that's why there was such an urgency to this thing. That as soon as somebody says yes to Jesus, bam, they need to be water baptized. They need to have this ceremony. That makes sense? Now, what does it mean to say yes to Jesus? Well, it means, first of all, it means we put our faith in him. What does that mean? Well, it begins with having right beliefs. There are certain beliefs about Jesus that are kind of important for you to have. We need to believe that he exists. We need to believe he's the son of God. We need to believe that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and on the third day physically resurrected from the grave. And so these are some beliefs that we have to have. But folks, throughout the scriptures, faith goes much deeper than just belief. It's, it builds upon belief. But faith is an act of relational trust, relational loyalty like marriage. When Carrie and I got married nearly 17 years ago, when I said I do to Carrie, well, first of all, part of, part of what made me married to Carrie is I had to believe certain things about her. I had to believe certain things about Carrie. If, if I didn't believe those things, I would have never wanted to marry her. So I needed to believe that she exists. First of all, it's kind of hard to marry somebody if you don't believe they exist. I needed to believe that she was a good person, that she had godly character. I needed to believe that um, Carrie's personality and my personality would be a good fit, that we would be compatible. I needed to believe all of these things if I was ever going to be married to my wife. But just because I had those beliefs about her, that's not what made me married to her. Yeah, I have beliefs about some of you. I believe you all exist. Doesn't make me married to you, right? So, so beliefs need to be there, but, but faith stands upon those beliefs and goes deeper. It goes to trust. So, so making myself married to Carrie involved pledging, first of all, to trust her as, as, as my wife. I needed to trust her character. I needed to trust that she is who I've come to believe that she is and pledged to trust her. And also the opposite is true. I needed to pledge to walk trustworthily before her, to, to walk faithfully. When I said I do to my wife on a, in a church kind of like this one, when I said I do, what I, part of what I was saying was I'm no longer going to live life as a single man. From this moment forward, I'm not going to think like a single man. I'm not going to relate to women like a single man. I am now going to be a married person. My wife and I, our lives are now intertwined, and we're going to walk together in a new trajectory called the married life. It is the same thing with saying yes to Jesus. Yes, we, we need to believe certain things, but we also enter into a trust-based relationship. First of all, we're trusting him. We're trusting his character. We're trusting that he truly is who we say he is. We're trusting his promises. We're trusting that he, um, he's going to be faithful, that he's never going to leave us. But the flip side of the coin is we're also going to pledge to walk faithfully with Jesus. That from this moment forward, I'm no longer going to center my life around myself. No, my life is now enjoined to Christ, and I'm committed to his kingdom. So this is what, um, you know, the scriptures talk about when it, when it talks about repentance. You know, what is repentance? We saw that a moment ago. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It means turn. The Greek word metanoia, it means I've been walking this way, now I'm going to turn and I'm going to begin walking in a whole new direction. 
And I'll be honest with you, yes, there comes that one moment where we make that decision, but all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. Every single day, if we, if we sit with the Lord long enough, there are probably little things that, that the Holy Spirit may show us. You know what? I need to turn from that. I need to turn from this. This thought pattern, this behavioral pattern, this unhealthy conversation, whatever it was, I need to turn from that. So, so repentance is a decision. And every disciple of Christ, your journey of discipleship begins at some point with some kind of decision to follow Jesus. This is why it's my conviction that anyone who's going to be baptized needs to be old enough to make a responsible decision to follow Jesus. If baptism is the first act of discipleship, well, that means that, you know, the person who's being baptized needs to be old enough to make a decision to be a disciple. Now, I don't put an age on that at all because every person's different. Some children mature faster than others. A lot of times that's where we kind of lean on the parents uh, to help us with that kind of thing. But that's what we see in the New Testament is that this was a conscious act that was taken on the part of the apprentice who's committing themselves to Jesus. Now, understandably, some of you may be thinking, well, I was baptized when I was an infant. My mom and dad had me baptized when I was a baby. Does that mean that my baptism as a baby was invalid? Here's how I would encourage you to think about infant baptism. You know, in certain parts of the world, there is such a thing as arranged marriages. You know, where here's a baby that's born, here's another couple who has a little baby, a little boy, a little girl, and the, the, the families, the parents of both children pledge that these babies are going to one day get married. They're going to arrange that marriage even before the baby's know how to count or speak, their marriage has been arranged, okay? Um, I would encourage you to think about infant baptism that way, that it's a pledge on the part of your parents to betroth you to Jesus Christ, and in that sense, it's, it can be a very valid thing. But listen, even in those cultures where there are arranged marriages, there comes a time where that little boy and that little girl grow up and they become adults and they have to own that decision for themselves and follow through with that. If they wanted to, they could resist. Even in cultures where that's against the law, they could, if they wanted to, make a big fuss about it and just refuse to do it and say, heck no, I am not marrying that person, right? So there comes a point where even though they've been pledged and the marriage has been arranged, you still have to own it for yourself and say, what our parents decided for us when we were babies, we're now going to take ownership of it and follow through and complete this act. See, that's what adult baptism is. And it doesn't invalidate your infant baptism. It actually completes it. It fulfills it. You're saying what my mom and dad intended for me when I was a baby, I'm now going to take ownership of my faith and I'm voluntarily going to choose to enjoin myself to Christ. Amen? Does that make sense? All right. There's one other issue I want to deal with when it comes to baptism, and that is the mode of baptism. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is used for baptism, it's baptizo, it means to dip, it means to immerse. Um, it's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament in ways that have nothing to do with water baptism. Some of you might remember uh, in the Last Supper, when Jesus is eating with his disciples and he's talking about how one of them is going to betray him, he says, uh, the person 
who I take this bread and I'm going to dip it in the cup. The person that I give it to is the one. You remember that? And it ended up being Judas. Well, that's what it means. It means to dip, to immerse. If you're going to eat after service tonight, let's say you go to a Mexican restaurant and you've got chips and salsa and you, you dip that chip, you immerse that chip in that salsa, you are baptizing that chip. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? See, that's what baptism means. The, the word baptism. Actual word. And this is how it was practiced, we see in the New Testament. They actually were immersed. Why is that a big deal? Why, why, why is that even important? There's actually a lot of significance to this image. And Paul brings it out in um, Romans chapter 6. He's writing a letter to these Roman Christians, and, and what was going on is some of these folks had this very wrong-headed idea, and they were thinking, you know what? God loves to show grace. God loves to forgive, which is great because we love sinning, and so if God loves to forgive and we love sinning, what a perfect arrangement. How about we just keep right on living in sin so God can keep on forgiving and do what he loves to do? And we'll have a great party, man. This will be wonderful. And so Paul is writing in this section to correct them on this because they're thinking completely off. And so look at what he says, Romans 6, first four verses, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin, past tense. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism, past tense, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now watch this. This takes us right to the heart of the good news and it's beautiful. When God... The second person of the Trinity became a human being known as Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He immersed himself into our humanity. He immersed himself into our sin. He immersed himself into our condemnation. That's what the cross is all about. God plunged into us. So also, when you and I say yes to Jesus... We are immersed in Christ. We are, Paul says, placed in Christ so that what happened to Jesus has happened to us. And our histories become intertwined. And, and Paul says, when Christ died, we died. And he's not speaking poetically here. In a very spiritually profound way, when we say yes to Jesus, we are placed in Christ so that his death has become our death and that his resurrection has become our resurrection. So here you have these Roman Christians who are saying, hey, God loves to forgive, we love to sin, let's just keep on sinning. And Paul's saying, guys, don't you remember? You're dead. The old you is gone. The old you is buried. That's over with. There's now a new you, a new self, a new identity. You're now a new creature. And to get them to understand this, he reminds them of their baptism. He says, when you went down into the water, you identified with Christ's death. You're dead. Did you forget that? And so also, when you rose up out of the water, you are identifying with his new life. 
Did you forget that? So he's using baptism here to remind these Christians of their identity. That, that the old you, the old self is gone, is dead, is buried, past tense. And there's a new you who has been resurrected. You, you, you now all have a whole new identity. You, you are now a new creature in Christ Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You've got righteous DNA flowing through your veins. You are holy and blameless in his sight. Now listen, our brains, our minds are still messed up which is why we don't always think this way, we don't always feel this way, but that's the whole process of discipleship. Discipleship is about getting your brain and your heart to align with what is already true. So water baptism, you can think of it this way. Water baptism is the tombstone of the old self, and it's the birth certificate of the new self. Paul's saying, look, when you went down into the water, that's your tombstone right there. You're dead. And if you ever forget that you're dead, remember your baptism. Just look at your tombstone. Oh, yeah, I'm dead. And he says, when you come up out of the water, that's like your birth certificate, that you have new life in Christ. And if you ever forget that, look back at your birth certificate and remind yourself, you know what? There's a whole new me in Christ. Now, just because you have a tombstone doesn't make you dead. And just because you have a birth certificate doesn't make you alive. So water baptism doesn't save you. But if you are dead, you ought to have a tombstone. And if you are alive, you ought to have a birth certificate. So also, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you ought to be baptized in water. And the New Testament, in fact, commands it. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.